Hey, I'm Dr. Michael Hunter, forensic pathologist from Autopsy, Reels Channel's medical mystery series on Podcast One and Apple Podcasts. Be sure to download the Podcast One app and subscribe. Then go to reels.com, that's R-E-E-L-Z.com, to find more programs like this one on Reels Channel. Funeral arrangements are still incomplete for artist Andy Warhol, who died Sunday in New York of heart failure. He was 58. Andy Warhol rose to fame in the 1960s as the groundbreaking leader of the pop art movement. Andy Warhol was probably the greatest artist in the 20th century. His images and ideas helped define American popular culture. Whether it was painting, sculpture, film, or music, he was on the cutting edge of everything. And he changed the wall. I mean, he really did change the wall. He became as iconic as his paintings. Yet even as he achieved superstardom, he remained an enigmatic and controversial figure. At the age of 58, he died suddenly in the hospital. You think of your friends as forever, and then somebody says their heart's no longer beating. We've always questioned why and how could have it happened. Andy Warhol died of heart failure, unexpectedly and at a relatively young age. His death followed a gallbladder operation, but this is a routine procedure with a very low mortality rate, so it's highly likely that there are other factors that cause his heart to stop. I want to know, what exactly claimed the life of this controversial and fascinating artist? World-renowned forensic pathologist Dr. Michael Hunter has performed thousands of autopsies to investigate and reveal the cause of death. Today, he's the chief medical examiner in one of America's biggest cities. Following Andy's sudden death, an incredibly thorough autopsy was carried out by the New York Medical Examiner's Office. I have the highly detailed report here, and I'm going to use this to find out why he died, unexpectedly, at the age of 58. January 22nd, 1987, Milan. It's the opening of Andy's latest show, and the artist is in attendance with personal photographer... Chris Makos. I was like in my 20s, and to, to fly back and forth to Europe supersonic with one of the great pop artists of our times, it was like a lot of fun. We both had a lot of fun. It was cool. Andy unveils an ambitious series of huge eye-popping images based on da Vinci's painting, The Last Supper. But the world's most famous living artist attracts as much attention as his paintings. Victor Bacchus, biographer. Andy was very loved by the Italians. I think something like 10,000 people came to the opening. At that point, he was a god. He was received like the second coming. The show is a resounding success. But back in his hotel suite, Andy complains he's coming down with the flu. 
he decides to cancel the rest of his interviews and spends the rest of the trip in his room. After splitting with his last boyfriend two years previously, Andy is single and alone. He was very depressed because he thought, well, now what? You know, like, who's going to go for me now? The Last Supper will turn out to be Andy's last show of new work. In less than a month, Andy will be dead. Andy had a very busy work and social schedule. Although this was a lifestyle he'd been leading for more than 30 years, he was now approaching 60. His flu-like illness could be a warning that he's overdoing it or a sign of something more serious. Andrew Varhola was born in 1928 in Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh, Andy said it, it was the worst place he'd ever been to in his life. He said, I come from nowhere, I come from hell. His parents had fled war-torn Eastern Europe, and Andy and his two older brothers were raised in the immigrant ghetto. He was very, very close to his mother. I mean, literally pinned to her side because he was frightened of being hit by his brothers or being made fun of. Pittsburgh's brutal working conditions led to the early death of Andy's father. But his dying wish was for his youngest son to make the most of his talent. James Warhalla, nephew. He knew he was a special individual. He was an extremely good artist at a young age. His hardworking father left enough savings to send Andy to the Carnegie Institute of Technology to study painting and design. He was the only one that was provided for to go to college. So he's kind of the chosen one. After graduating, Andy headed for New York. With a thriving advertising industry capitalized on his unique skills. He was illustrating for all the major magazines and doing book covers and record album covers and some very established shoe companies were hiring him, paying him very well. But Andy wanted recognition as a serious artist. He needed a big idea. And the new movement making waves on the art scene was pop art. By glamorizing normal things, a soup can, a dollar bill, he found his voice, he found his subject matter. Andy was holding a mirror up to society, showing what the American public was obsessed with, whether it was Hollywood, products, commercialism. The shy and awkward son of immigrants who once dreamed of fame was now the unlikely spokesman for New York's cutting-edge art scene. You have just then copied a common uh, item. Yes. Well, why have you bothered to do that? Why not create something new? Uh, because it's easier to do. He made the best of that shyness, and, uh, and he came off as being eccentric and odd. Well, isn't this sort of a joke, then, that you're playing on the public? Uh, no. It gives me something to do. He was very short with his answers, and he'd say the most amazing things, sometimes absurd. Um, but that was Andy. I don't think he was faking a personality. He was that way. 
Andy was feeling run down in the weeks before his death. But looking at pictures throughout his life, he seemed to project an image of ill health. He had a waxy, ghost-like complexion, and looking into his medical history, I can see that he had a childhood illness that may have been the cause. Andy suffered from something called St. Vitus Dance. When he was eight, Andy suddenly lost control of his coordination. His shaking hands stopped him performing the simplest tasks, and his speech became slurred. St. Vitus Dance is a condition which can occur after the bacterial infection associated with rheumatic fever. Streptococcus A bacteria triggers a response from the body's immune system. Antibodies attack and destroy cells in the part of the brain responsible for motor function. This results in uncontrollable fidgeting and a shaking of the limbs. This was a relatively common illness in built-up and unsanitary urban environments. It took two months of bed rest for Andy to recover from his St. Vitus dance, but the infection left him permanently afflicted. Childhood St. Vitus dance can lead to damaged heart valves, but according to his autopsy, Andy had no such pathologic changes. He did, however, suffer from a rash of reddish blotches brought on by his illness, and outbreaks of similar blotches would continue to plague him throughout his life. As an adult, Andy became obsessive over his appearance. He's got the bad skin, he's got the sloped shoulders, he's got the hunched you know, thing, he's going bald. But his physical flaws didn't curb Andy's unwavering desire for fame. He knew the, the power of advertising, whether it was the power of advertising in the magazine or the power of advertising yourself. He knew that to make this work, you have to make yourself a brand. And so his brand was this person, this persona that he created. He wanted to be as famous as the Queen of England. That was one of the funny things he said in the 50s. So the cartoon thing is all about recognizability and fame. And he emerges by the time the factory opens, where he's got, he's, he's, he's got the wig, he's got the makeup, he's got the costume. Andy struggled with blotchy skin throughout his life, and he had regular injections of collagen, as well as using creams and makeup to cover up his face. I don't believe these treatments played any role in his death, but there is a medication that Andy used for his appearance that jumps out as potentially dangerous. He tried to lose weight as a young man by taking a diet pill called Obitrol. It's a form of amphetamine, or speed, and he admitted that this drug became a daily habit. It begs the question, did Andy's amphetamine habit cause his heart to fail? Take coloring your hair at home to the next level with Madison Reed. You really deserve gorgeous professional hair color delivered to your door starting at just $22. 
For decades, women have had two options for coloring their hair, outdated at-home color or the time and expense of a traditional salon. And for me, I don't really do much hair dye for, for my own hair, but what I do love about Madison Reed is they make it super simple. So even if it's been a little while, you can go on their website and just go through all of their sort of um, selection process and make sure that you're finding the exact right shade for you. And many Madison Reed clients comment on how their new hair color has improved their lives. Women really love the results. Gorgeous, shiny, multi-dimensional, healthy-looking hair. This is truly game-changing color you can do at home and look as if you just came from the salon. What makes Madison Reed color unique is that it's crafted by master colorists who blend nuances of light, dark, cool, and warm tones to create over 55 gorgeous multi-dimensional shades. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com. Autopsy listeners get 10% off plus free shipping on their first color kit with code LASTHOURS. That's code LASTHOURS. Enigmatic icon of the art world, Andy Warhol, died suddenly in the hospital on February 22, 1987, at the age of 58. Now, world-acclaimed forensic pathologist Dr. Michael Hunter is studying Andy's autopsy report to work out what caused his unexpected and fatal heart failure. Andy openly admitted to taking amphetamines. It's a habit he began when he tried to lose weight, but became part of his daily routine. Footage from the mid-1960s captures Andy at his creative peak, assisted by a collective of free-thinking radicals. There's a big change when he gets involved with the, the amphetamine, the A-heads, who shot methamphetamine hydrochloride, went out for days and days playing opera. Amphetamine works by increasing neurotransmitter activity in the brain, stimulating the central nervous system. It makes users energized and able to stay awake for extended periods of time. But the increased heart rate and blood pressure mean that heavy speed use can lead to a number of heart complications. And I wonder if Andy's speed habit triggered a fatal heart problem. He's very associated with drugs, and he did use that to publicize the image of the factory as being a very druggy place. It was a very druggy place. Danny himself was not very druggy. He just took one pill a day. He was not like gorging and taking a lot more. He took, he took one. And with that little diet pill, helping him to concentrate was very important to him. Looking at Andy's autopsy report, I'm surprised to see that his heart is in fairly good condition. And according to his toxicology report, he tested negative for amphetamines, as well as cocaine and cannabis. So whatever killed Andy, it wasn't recreational drugs, and I'll have to look elsewhere for a cause of death. Friday, February 13, 1987, nine days before his death. Andy is back home in New York. The flu symptoms he was feeling in Milan appear to have subsided, so he attends his weekly appointment with a personal trainer. I was always under the impression my uncle was extremely healthy. He took great care of himself. Stuart Pivar, friend. Andy was one of the strongest people I've ever met. He once gave me a big bear hug, and his arms felt like wood, and his back felt like steel. It was quite remarkable. 
Andy's close friends describe a man who was taking great care of himself in his later years. But there are other reports that Andy was often seen with a bottle of a painkiller called Demerol. He had a small a medicine bottle where you would, when no one was looking, would take a couple of drops. Demerol is a strong opioid painkiller, normally prescribed in a hospital. And it's unusual that Andy was taking it. It does tell me that something was causing him considerable discomfort. And looking further into his autopsy, I have found shocking evidence that Andy was no stranger to pain. He had eight large scars across his abdomen, the longest of which measured 10 inches. Andy suffered a life-changing trauma at some point in his life. By 1968, Andy was concentrating his efforts on avant-garde filmmaking. And on June 3rd, one of his actors paid him a visit. Valerie Solanas was a radical feminist writer who wanted Andy to produce her play. But Andy refused. She's in the elevator and she's got this paper bag in her hand. He goes into the factory, he's got a big meeting. He's on the phone. Valerie's standing there feeling very closed out because they're all doing stuff and she's just standing there and they're ignoring him. And then she takes the gun out of the paper bag and no one sees it. And then she, she turns toward Andy and he sees her. No, don't do it, Valerie, don't do it. She shoots and she misses. No, Valerie, don't do it. She shoots again. And the bullet went in. Through there, it came out through here, went through his spleen, his lungs, and uh, he's, he's on the ground, he's screaming, blood's flying out. The paramedics come up the elevator. They have to carry him down four flights of stairs. So at that point, he passed out. They go to the hospital in about five or six minutes and they put him onto the operating table. And he hears him saying, There's no chance. And he, di he died. Andy was shot once through the right lung. The bullet continued through his esophagus his liver, his spleen, and intestines emerging from his left side. The damage to vital organs and severe blood loss could easily have killed him. He died for a few minutes. And then the, the surgeon brought him back. I was a 13-year-old in Pittsburgh, and we got word this kind of insane actress tried to kill him, and he was in critical condition in the hospital in New York. It was a shock. While Andy was in intensive care, his would-be killer handed herself in to police, claiming she shot him because he had too much control over her life. 
Valerie Solanus was charged with assault and attempted murder, and later diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. After serving three years, she was released, but spent much of the rest of her life in and out of institutions. The incident scarred Andy for life. Paul Warhollow. Nephew. He had several procedures, several surgeries. They were really putting him back together. There was a lot of internal damage. And after the surgeries, a lot of pain. According to the medical examiner records, Andy's surgery led to a subphrenic abscess, which is an infection below the diaphragm. In order to treat the problem, his surgical wounds had to be reopened. This weakened his abdominal wall, and his intestines protruded through, causing a ventral incisional hernia. It also left him with abundant adhesions, or internal scars, throughout his abdomen. In a documentary from 1973, Andy reluctantly opened up about his scars. Can we talk about your scars? Oh, yeah. That was from... When you got shot, your accident. Yeah. It must have been awful. Oh, no, I look like a Dior dress. <laughs> no, I need St. Laurent dress. By the lot of stitches. Did it change your life much? Oh, I don't take off my clothes. But that's the only thing it changed. Oh, uh, yeah. Andy had to wear a girdle to hold in his hernia for the rest of his life. But there's a more significant consequence of his surgery. He had his spleen removed, which plays an important role in the body's immune system. Without it, Andy would have been at greater risk of developing infections. I wonder, did the damage from Andy's near-fatal shooting come back to haunt him almost 19 years later? An autopsy not only reveals how a person died, but how they lived. I'm Dr. Michael Hunter. If you like what you're hearing, check out more dark mysteries on your TV on Reels channel. There are shocking real-life and death stories in world's most evil killers, like the quiet neighbor nicknamed the Scorpion after he bludgeoned nine women to death with a hammer, and Rodney Alcala, the serial murderer best known as the dating game killer. Then check out the latest episodes of Autopsy that reveal what really killed screen and music legends like Walt Disney, Tom Petty, David Cassidy, and Batman's Adam West. You can find Reels on your TV at Reels.com. That's R-E-E-L-Z.com. Then check the top of the screen to find Reels in your area. World-renowned forensic pathologist Dr. Michael Hunter is highly experienced in the investigation of unusual and suspicious deaths. Now he's reviewing the autopsy report of controversial artist Andy Warhol. After he was shot through the chest in 1968, Andy had life-saving surgery. He sustained considerable organ damage and most significantly, he had a splenectomy. The spleen plays an important role in the body's immune system. Andy could certainly live without it, but 
he was left at a much greater risk of developing serious bacterial infections. And the fact that he was having some flu-like symptoms in the months leading up to his death does ring alarm bells. Saturday, February 14th, 1987. Eight days before his death. Andy has an appointment with his dermatologist, Dr. Karen Burke. It was a usual Saturday morning sort of drop-in to say hello. Andy has regular treatments for acne, as well as anti-aging collagen injections to reduce his wrinkles. This time I could see he was clearly in pain. Andy complains of a pain in his right side. When he described the pain to me, I told him to call his physician, Dr. Cox. I think you should call your doctor. I advised him to go home to rest. And later that evening, he said he felt much better. The pain Andy experienced was on the right side of his abdomen, in the area of his old injuries. Long-term pain from internal adhesions like Andy's is quite common. But I wonder if the pain is something else. Reading further into his reports, I can see that Andy had a gallstone that was yellowish in color and measured two centimeters in diameter, or less than an inch. It's a common condition for someone of Andy's age, and often gallstones go unnoticed and untreated. But there's a reason Andy's gallstone was causing him pain. It was trapped in his hepatic duct and blocking the flow of bile into his digestive system. This leads to a painful but temporary inflammation of the gallbladder called biliary colic. The more frequently this inflammation occurs, the greater the risk of developing a gallbladder infection. And if an infection goes untreated, it can become fatal. February 17th, 1987, five days before his death. Andy is in New York's Tunnel Club at a catwalk show for Japanese fashion designer Koshin Sato. The last time I saw him was at the tunnel at the fashion show. He was hired as a model, and it was very cold and very drafty down there. He looked a little bit gaunt. He already was quite thin, and to see your friend thinner was disturbing. The pain of biliary colic is often at its greatest after eating certain foods, so patients can experience decreased appetite. Andy's noticeable weight loss suggests the condition had been affecting him for a number of weeks. They were dressing him, and he started to really go into some kind of a weakness, and he couldn't stand well. And we could not talk him out of pursuing it. He went on and did the show. Afterwards, he lost all of his energy and said, Stuart, quick, get me out of this place. Andy was rumored to have been taking a strong painkiller in the weeks prior to his death. This, coupled with his weight loss, suggests his gallstone had been giving him pain for a while. But looking into Andy's medical history, I found something that takes my investigation in a whole new direction. Andy's pain began 
14 years previously. By 1973, Andy had moved on from his brush with death and regained his creative drive. He now funded new projects through commissioned portraits for his social network of wealthy clients. It was at the home of one such socialite that Andy collapsed in excruciating pain. He was taken to the hospital and diagnosed with a gallstone. But when doctors advised him to have an operation to remove his gallbladder, Andy refused. The biliary colic caused by Andy's gallstone is a condition that flares up and then subsides. So his pain would not have been constant, and he managed it for 14 years. But he was told repeatedly to have his gallbladder removed. It's a straightforward operation with a low mortality rate. So I wonder, why did Andy go against the advice of his physicians? I think everybody that knew Andy well, they knew that he had a fear of hospitals. When he used to drive by hospitals, he would turn his face away from them. He didn't, didn't even want to look at them. Andy's shooting and subsequent surgery had a devastating emotional impact that would affect him for the rest of his life. Post-traumatic stress disorder happens when the event is so traumatic, we're not able to cope. Symptoms include recurring thoughts. You may have nightmares about it. It affects your sleeping, it affects your eating, it affects your mood. Given what Andy went through, this would no doubt have been exactly the type of thing that would cause post-traumatic stress. But Andy's fear of hospitals took root long before the near-fatal shooting. His father had liver disease from poisoned water on, on a job site that he'd been working on. And his father said, if I go to the hospital, I'm not going to come back. Andy was 14 when his father died in the hospital of liver failure. In those days, they laid up the body in the house for a few days. And Andy hid under the bed for the whole time. It was a very traumatic experience for him. Right after his father died, his mother got extremely ill with cancer, and, and they were almost sure she was going to die. And uh, she went into the hospital. Julia Varhola spent weeks in the hospital, receiving life-altering surgery. Throughout this time, Andy was in constant fear that his mom had died. She finally comes home, but she's, she's like, so destroyed. These two events, the father's death, the mother's near death, begins the long story of Andy's fear of hospitals. Hospitals become not a place uh, where you go to get better. It's a place that you go in and, and they take a little piece of you and they somehow distort you. Wednesday, February 18th, 1987, four days before Andy's death. He finally tells his physician, Dr. Denton Cox, that he's been in pain for several weeks. Okay, Andy, do you mind just lying up on the bench there, please? Dr. Cox takes a sonogram of the area, and after a thorough examination, concludes that Andy's gallbladder is so badly infected, it's in danger of becoming gangrenous. If Andy's gallbladder burst, 
it could lead to a life-threatening case of peritonitis. This can lead to an infection of the tissues that lines the abdomen, spreading quickly through the bloodstream, infecting major organs, and causing death through septic shock. Andy is a walking time bomb until he gets his gallbladder removed. Desperate to avoid a stay in the hospital, Andy seeks a second opinion from leading surgeon Dr. Bjorn Thorbjörnsson. Both doctors are in complete agreement. You must have an operation. Andy needs an operation immediately. But Andy won't hear of it. He pleads for an alternative treatment that doesn't involve the hospital. He would always say, if I ever go in, I'll never come out. He would repeat that very prophetically. Unfortunately for Andy, surgery is the only option. Andy was so afraid of hospitals, he refused surgery, even when his condition became life-threatening. So I now wonder, did he wait too long and die from an infection? Andy Warhol's sudden death in 1987 sent shockwaves through the art establishment. Now, world-renowned pathologist Dr. Michael Hunter is analyzing his autopsy report to find out what was going on in Andy's body during his final days. According to the report, Andy's gallbladder indicated acute inflammation and long-standing chronic disease. He had this gallbladder uh, problem, which, and which left him constantly in pain. After putting off surgery for 14 years, Andy's gallbladder had become so dangerously inflamed, it was life-threatening. Friday, February 20th, 11 a.m. Two days before his death, Andy finally admits himself to New York Hospital. Escorted by an assistant, he checks in under the name Bob Roberts. None of us in the family had any inkling that he was to go into the hospital. He didn't want to bother his two brothers with the simple procedure. He didn't want them to fuss and probably come and visit. So he didn't tell any family members. Saturday, February 21st. At 8.45 a.m., Andy is anesthetized, and the surgery to remove his gallbladder begins. But the internal damage from his 1968 shooting poses an immediate problem. What would normally be a routine operation is made far riskier by Andy's adhesions and hernia. To reach the gallbladder, the surgeons had to cut through Andy's internal scar tissue and fix his hernia and repair the abdominal wall. Dr. Thorbjörnsson has to proceed with absolute caution. Cutting through the web of Andy's internal scars could easily result in an accidental incision to one of his major organs. This meant that Andy's operation lasted considerably longer and put an increased amount of stress on his body. The surgeon removes Andy's infected gallbladder. He later recalled the organ was so gangrenous, it fell apart in his hands. Gangrene occurs when the body tissue dies due to a lack of blood supply. The tissue is infected with bacteria, and if this enters into the bloodstream, 
the infection can spread and lead to sepsis. Sepsis happens when the body is fighting infection and responds so fiercely that it triggers an intense inflammatory response. Inflammation hinders blood flow and can stop blood reaching major organs, leading to organ failure. Sepsis contributes to almost half of all hospital deaths. By the early afternoon, Andy is out of the operating room. The operation was perfectly fine. There were no complications. And by 3.30, he was in his room and was fine. The notes in Andy's autopsy describe his operation as uneventful. Despite its complexity, it was a success. Andy is well enough to walk around. He's informed that he will probably be discharged sooner than expected. I spoke to him on Saturday evening, and he told me that he thought he would be going to the ballet the next day. At 8 p.m., Andy has administered morphine to alleviate his pain and help him sleep. February 22nd, 2 a.m. A private nurse has been hired to monitor Andy's condition. But Andy is sleeping, and rather than check his vital signs, she decides not to wake him up. a.m. The nurse checks on Andy, but cannot find a pulse. She tries to wake him, but he's unresponsive. A cardiac arrest code is called. When the arrest team arrive, they find him cold to the touch, and his skin has turned blue. At 6.21 a.m., Andy is pronounced dead. Funeral arrangements are still incomplete for artist Andy Warhol, who died Sunday in New York of heart failure. He was 58. When I got that sudden news that he passed, it was a shock. I mean, it was a shock to everyone. Everyone never expected it. My first response is, well, who am I going to talk to? It was a very strange, odd feeling. Who am I going to talk to? My close friends, we all had the same feeling, a sense of loss. Looking back on it, I wished I had called him just to say hi and say, how are you doing, Uncle Andy? We're thinking about you. Uh, What are you involved with now? I wished I would have, but we kind of lost that opportunity. Expert pathologist Dr. Michael Hunter is investigating whether the infection from Andy's gallbladder spread into his bloodstream and triggered fatal sepsis. Sepsis is a massively debilitating condition that causes high fever, breathing difficulties, and increased heart rate. Patients need immediate intensive care. But 
Andy was walking around in good spirits and showed no sign of being in need of urgent care. And looking at the autopsy, there are no signs of major infection outside of his gallbladder. So, although he'd put his life in danger by waiting so long to have the operation, the infected gallbladder played no role in his death. He was perfectly good, he was recovering, but that night something seriously happened and he didn't wake up. Andy's initial death certificate reads, pending further study. So the cause of death was not readily apparent at autopsy. However, the report does throw up something that intrigues me. The medical examiner had doubts over the hospital's response to Andy's condition, stating, notes and recordings do not adequately reflect his clinical status during the morning hours. The private duty nurse was supposed to check him every hour. She didn't. Basically, it's questionable who was watching him that evening. Andy Warhol died in mysterious circumstances following an apparently successful operation to remove his gallbladder. The reports from the hospital after the operation were everything went fine, there were no complications, great, we did it, you know, and so on. But less than 24 hours after his surgery, Andy suffered sudden heart failure, and efforts to resuscitate him failed. I believe that his death could have been avoided if, if he had the proper cure. In the following years, there was a wrongful death suit brought against the doctors, the nurses, and the hospital. The lawyers of Andy Warhol's estate argued that Andy died from hypervolemia or fluid overload, and that hospital staff failed to notice that he was unable to process the amount of fluid he was being given intravenously. The real criticism was that he had received too much fluid, and he was not releasing it. He was not getting rid of it. So, ultimately, it was his lungs that filled up. Fluid overload is essentially drowning from fluid in the blood being forced into the lungs. And the autopsy shows that Andy's lungs were congested and filled with an abundance of frothy, pinkish fluid. In 1991, New York Hospital agreed to an out-of-court settlement, paying the Warhol estate $3 million. While question marks remain over the hospital's level of care towards Andy, Dr. Hunter believes there could be another explanation for the fluid in his lungs. The fluid in his lungs was pulmonary edema, which occurs when the heart stops functioning properly. Blood gets backed up in the blood vessels around the lungs. As pressure in these blood vessels increases, fluid is pushed through the capillary walls into the lungs' air sacs. So, in my opinion, the congestion of his lungs was caused by his failing heart, not the intravenous fluids administered by the hospital. In fact, the circumstances surrounding his death are very consistent with something else entirely a morphine overdose, 
Pulmonary edema is a common signifier of opiate deaths, and urinary retention is also a side effect of an overdose. I can see that Andy's bladder is distended. There's 800 cc's of urine in his bladder, which is a tremendous amount. Andy was given morphine at 8 p.m., and it does show up in the toxicology report. But the amount is minimal and nowhere near overdose levels. So I can discount morphine overdose as well as infection and fluid overload as causes of death. This is one of the most fascinating and truly challenging cases I've come across. Andy's autopsy was as thorough and detailed as possible, and the examiners left no stone unturned in pursuit of an answer to the question, what killed Andy Warhol? They tested for cyanide so they could rule out foul play through poisoning. They checked his lungs for pneumonia to rule out a hospital-acquired infection. They even submerged his heart in water to check for air bubbles in the bloodstream so they could rule out an embolism from surgery. But they struggled to find a definitive answer. Ultimately, the cause of death was the one thing that doesn't show up in an autopsy, a cardiac arrhythmia. This is a sudden change in the heart's rhythm, causing the heart to beat erratically and ineffectively, in Andy's case resulting in sudden cardiac arrest. The specific cause of his arrhythmia cannot be understood through the autopsy findings alone. The difficulties to his surgery caused by the scars from his 1968 shooting would have undoubtedly put his body under a lot of stress. But whether this stress played a role in triggering his heart arrhythmia, I can't say for certain. We've never accepted that he just died from some heart arrhythmia, or it was just a sudden heart attack. We never believed it. We may never know the exact reason, but I think uh, we will always wonder. These almost inexplicable deaths are extremely rare. The irony of Andy Warhol's death being such a mystery does not escape me. He was an enigma throughout his life, and it seems his death was no different. For me, Andy hasn't really died. He's always there. You know, it's not like it's not like he just disappeared. It's the work. It's the children of Warhol that are out there. He was suddenly. The greatest person I've ever met. The most fascinating person I've ever met. And probably one of the only geniuses I've ever met. You won't get another Andy Warhol. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Autopsy. Don't forget to subscribe at podcastone.com with the Podcast One app or at Apple Podcasts. Then go to reels.com, that's R-E-E-L-Z.com, for clips, extras, and more from the TV version of the series, including reenactments and autopsy photos you'll only see on Reels' channel. Find Reels on your TV at reels.com. I'm Dr. Michael Hunter.